Hey, hello, I'm Ren Ribeiro, and I want to connect with you about peace and justice. We are interviewing women who labor for peace, as we have forever and always will, until we all feel peace in our homes, our workplaces, our communities, and especially our bodies and minds. This initiative is named Mujeres Co-Labor for Peace. It's a show of intimate conversations with justice workers who are healing their self and communities from the effects of misogyny, capitalism, and climate change. Hello, and welcome to the show. This show is about taking steps, however small, to heal the effects of misogyny, capitalism, and climate change. And this episode was created to bridge episodes one and two. I mentioned a rabbit hole about grief that I might go down someday in the future, and apparently the future is now. My wish is for you to explore and reflect upon some important topics with me that you might not otherwise immerse yourself in, and that afterwards you feel a bit more inspired and peaceful about life. My name is Ren Ribeiro, and I wish you complete wellness and lasting peace. The idea here is to arrive to this show and begin each episode with an inquiry of the self. Asking ourselves, how is this beating heart right now? I will ask myself this, and I'll ask you to arrive here with a reflection on what is on your heart in this moment. Today, my heart is, <sighs> it's, it's beating pretty fast, and I'm grateful to have a heart that is beating fast. <laughs> um, and my heart feels, it feels really good and healthy. Hmm. And hmm. I, I, it feels hopeful. How is your heart? And I invite us all to take a slow, deep breath of integration. Or two. <sighs> the intimate conversation today is about grief. I shared my working definition about misogyny in the last episode, and it calls for some unpacking. Even though episode two has been produced and edited and focuses on a couple of high-level notions for healing the effects of misogyny, it seems clear to me that before getting to the content in episode two, more spaciousness is needed around this working definition of misogyny as a process or behavior of shifting blame, particularly the burden of grief, onto women, a shifting a burden that has become so habitual, even invisible, to the point that many women and men cannot even see it. As we observed in episode one, misogyny began thousands of years ago and profit motivations were enmeshed with this element of sexism from the beginning of the patriarchy when the notion of gender was created. Considering this history while simultaneously reflecting on our own personal experience of misogyny or the policing and enforcing element of the patriarchal order is a choice to proactively engage with a subject as ubiquitous as, say, climate change or capitalism. These are the three tenets of Mujeres Co-Labor for Peace for a reason. These issues hold so much potential and possibility for reweaving the fabric of our personal lives and relationships, as well as the far-reaching effects of making that proactive choice rippling out like waves. 
before getting too excited about the potential of co-laboring or collaborating together, even energetically, I want to further explain Kate Mann's distinction that misogyny is about policing and enforcing the patriarchal order. Policing another's behavior, making them uncomfortable and on edge about being in a process of any kind, intellectual, artistic, biological, simply being alive, especially if their process is outside the box, a tightly prescribed process of living according to the rules of the elusive, dominator patriarchal order, is to police. And to confront another for being in a process, living in any way that seems to the person policing them to be outside of that box, is to attempt to enforce. <laughs> hmm. Looking back at history while looking inside our bodies, our vehicles for making sense of life, is not only a way to heal our personal sense of the past, it is also a way to broaden our perspective about how any particular element of history affected us or continues to affect us. This is easier said than done. We humans are not machines that can eschew the emotions, the very pieces of ourselves that make us unique individuals, able to be responsive and engaged with life, with one another, with the process of making meaning in and with the world. To honor our human beauty, I'd like us to think, better yet, feel for a moment about how strong beauty is relative to ugliness. It is easy to be ugly. We don't have to work at it. We can choose not to brush our teeth, to have bad breath. We can choose not to shower and have bedhead for a week or months on end. But we don't choose this. We'd like to wash off much of the energy of yesterday and welcome each new day refreshed. Instead of being emotionally beautiful, we can also choose to view other humans as defective, mean-spirited, deeply ignorant. We can choose to let any emotionally generated and unfiltered ugly words spew out of our mouths or our fingers on antisocial media. We can choose to be civil and practice listening to our inner voices and asking ourselves, why is this so? To understand the emotionality of our words and filter them through our heart as best we can before they come out of our mouths or onto a keyboard. Asking why is this so, which I call using our wits, because W-I-T-S is the acronym for why is this so, is a key process in the inner fortune journal system that I designed many years ago to support myself in this process of inner listening. The choice to notice beauty in the perseverance of wildflowers the freshness of a breeze or a flowing body of water, the strength of a tall tree feels good. Could it be that as we see beauty in nature, we grow beauty in ourselves? Now with that sense of and relationship to nature and our inner beauty comes a responsibility to serve it, to observe it, to conserve it, to preserve it so that we deserve it. And through that complex and active process of responsibility to nature and beauty comes awareness of the pain and suffering. I don't know about you, but I cannot gaze upon wild, non-cultivated plant bodies, especially trees, and not see their pain and suffering, their grief. Touching my own grief is the way I can build awareness of, of grief existing in another. And I have noticed that so much of my own grief is rooted in the trifecta of misogyny, capitalism, and climate change. Many years of this observation has created connections between the three so thick and gnarly that I can see them as one sociopolitical challenge.
They are interrelated, and I am doing my best to try to cut away the winding and suffocating vines, so to speak, so that the content of this show can support all of us in seeing these issues clearly and feel inspired to take action. Again, looking back at history, even if it was just yesterday, while looking inside of our bodies, our life sensory vehicles, is a way to heal our sense of the past and our way to expand our perspectives about how we have been affected. This gives us agency to make choices. Maybe you've been practicing this kind of beauty awareness and responsibility for years, and maybe you have been called sensitive by others. I heard, you're too sensitive and you think too much throughout my childhood. Now, if I confuse people with all my streams of consciousness, they smile at me or change the subject, and that's fine. I've got others to connect with. I'm still going to keep growing awareness of beauty alongside the often agonizing awareness of pain and suffering. It is an honorable and respectful practice of being grateful to be alive. I have also proactively reframed being sensitive to being sensational. If you are sensitive, you are also sensational. The agonizing awareness of misogyny is like any challenging awareness. Once you know it and see it, you can't unknow it and you see it everywhere. <sighs> being careful to not ascribe a newly forming view to everything we look at or to not metaphorically paint the world with this new color on our brush allows us to engage with others with discernment. The key is to engage. And I deeply hope that this Mujeres Co-Labor for Peace show can be one of the many containers of support that fosters more engagement about challenging issues that can lead to peace and justice in the world, one conversation at a time. It's funny to me, in a not-so-funny way, that even though I am so blessed to have many people in my life with whom I can have conversations about misogyny or capitalism or climate change, deeply resonant conversations that vibrate my heart like tuning forks and dispel the fog in my brain, it's the people I cannot have these conversations with that keep me grieving and creatively yearning for more engagement. Let's go back to that working definition of misogyny for a moment and unpack it a bit. Process or behavior of shifting blame, particularly the burden of grief onto women, a shifting of burden that has become so habitual, even invisible, to the point that many women and men cannot even see it. We will explore reproductive labor in depth in episode four and maybe also episode five, as this labor of reproducing things like a clean home day after day is integral to some of the invisibility this definition speaks to. More generally, let's take a peek at this question. What are some of the behaviors of interpersonal blame shifting and expectations that the burdens of grief are to fall upon women? Yes, absolutely, 100%. Women blame shift to men and men grieve deeply. That is not the question or in question, even though it could appear so. Even though asking questions like this are often that out-of-the-box process that gets policed and enforced in the perpetration and perpetuation of misogyny. If we breathe into this question with curiosity rather than a pointed finger, we can soften 
around some deeply held grievances and patterns that with some healthy conversations might shift and bring lightness, joy, and more complete wellness and more lasting peace. This question is not rhetorical. It is being asked not to offer answers, but to evoke a few memories that are close enough to the conscious surface to be safe to look at, to inspect, to talk about, and ideally to heal somatically in the body so that future similar interpersonal patterns can be met with a bit more clarity and grace. Who is most actively holding awareness of this burden of grief? The first community of people that come to my mind is the femme community. And as you know, femme are often gender non-conforming people assigned female at birth and often people with darker melanin. It is important to emphasize here that just because an issue like burden of grief is not held by a community doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It means that the issue like burden of grief is likely tamped down into the subconscious where it is more likely to emerge unskillfully without using our wits as described earlier. I'd like to repeat myself here, but you can rewind and re-listen if you'd like. A brief scan at what the femme community may be holding and agitating on around burden of grief, specific to misogyny, reveals a few things. Centering Sisters LLC, an organization that unapologetically addresses the needs and issues of black women, girls, and femmes, featured a year ago-ish a talk about quiet quitting. To briefly paraphrase, quiet quitting is the slow leak of life force that occurs alongside intimate relationship struggles, the flattening of one's affect or vim and vigor for life. I'd like to offer an image an artist created for me that is part of my emotional justice process and the eight gateways of the Inner Fortune digital journal app. I learned of this communication process in college and remember feeling bowled over recognizing its incredible power. To understand that we deliver messages through our nonverbal and vocal bodies, our medium to an audience often our beloved, and that this entire communication loop is not complete until feedback is received, is truly empowering. If we are careful about our message and are graceful with our medium, care about the experience of our audience, and gracefully wait for feedback, we begin to see the subtle ways toward emotional justice and healthy communication interpersonal and even socio-political. And because the female versus male is a competitive knee-jerk response for many of us, I want to turn to a recent article in The Atlantic about gender-divided social spaces. Reader Jalila writes, quote, when gender segregation is the norm rather than a quirk of a weekly social group, women get the short end of the stick. Almost all the mosques I have attended confine women to tiny, plain rooms during services. Literally, the only counterexample I can think of is the Dome of the Rock. Men get large, ornate halls. Separate but equal is a myth in all respects. I have a story about being disrespectful at the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, so I'm particular to this excerpt. The point it helps me make 
is that women do get the short end of the stick in so many ways that addressing misogyny can feel like fighting a never-ending downpour. One obvious femme to consider in a search about what it takes to rise above the burden of grief is Madonna. From Mary Gabriel's 800-page biography, Madonna, A Rebel Life, she writes about the socio-political impact Madonna had after releasing her 1992 coffee table collection of photographic erotica titled Sex, and how Madonna, quote, inhabited all the stereotypes that patriarchal society concocted for women, the dutiful daughter, the gamine, or a slim boyish waif, a blonde bombshell, adoring wife, bitch, in her pursuit of a new woman, who exercised her power freely, joyously, even wantonly, if that's what she wanted. Her quest was a feminine imaginary, an ego no longer given over to the image defined by the masculine. <sighs> this quest to break the dominant patriarchy mold that we see through the experiences of high-profile people like Claudine Gay of Harvard, gets more reinforced the closer to power women get. By this, I mean that, yes, the pressure gets more intense, but also, yes, the community of support in pursuits of justice also gets reinforced. That is the point women must focus on, not the fomented fear of being targeted. At a femme poetry slam I participated in a few years ago, I heard themes along the lines of this quest to break out of the box. I reckoned with being a newbie in that space, as well as the near last placement I was given to read. And if you know poetry slams, you know that knowing people and going early before the judges get tired matters in the score you get. We can only move at the speed of trust. I love this phrase because it keeps the emphasis on relationship building, not impatient forcing. Communities of care move more slowly than communities built on legacies of extraction. In episode one, we reflected on misogyny imbued within the people, the beliefs, the behaviors, the expectations, and the establishments that both minimize and exceptionalize women. And I explained these polarities in more popular terms of gaslighting and extracting, respectively. Gaslighting, both external and internal, as the burden of being minimized can, over time, become an assault we self-inflict, and extracting, as the burden of being uplifted for profit, can feel exceptional, but is in practice deeply extractive to our spirits and sense of identities. This episode 1.5 of Mujeres Co-Labor for Peace went down a bit further into grief and was necessary to underscore a few principles of the show before continuing on with the series on healing from the effects of misogyny. This show will only uplift women's collaborations that bring about peace and justice in the spaces of misogyny, capitalism, and climate change. Not because women are inherently peacemakers, that would be reductionistic. It's because there are too many women working too hard to sustain their motivation to feel peaceful 
and experience the justice needed to truly breathe deeply each day. The book I'd like to leave you with today is called Bitch, On the Female of the Species by Lucy Cook. In the book description, we find the problem with studying zoology is sex. That being female meant that she was by nature, at least according to Darwin in his ilk, a loser. And that females are, quote, dull, passive, and devoted. Cook charts the rising influence of feminism on the phallocracy of evolutionary biology over the past several decades, arguing for the power of more recent female-led science to, for example, reframe core beliefs about sexual selection, maternal instinct, and self-sacrifice, and proclivities for monogamy or nymphomania. Join me for more of the conversation about misogyny next time in episode two of this series on Mujeres Co-Labor for Peace. I am Ren Ribeiro. I thank you for joining. This initiative is supported by Inner Fortune, the full-life self-coaching journal that is now digital. Join us for peace and thank you for your heart.